But gradually what happened is a lot of my clients turned from clients to women in the sense they became more of my supporters. They were literally the ones to tell me, Noelle, we understand you still want to go full force. However, you just had a baby and we get it. It's not going to be how you want it to be. You're not going to be able to give 200% because you just can't. However, we are going to hold your hand and we're going to get through it together. Uh, it, was, it came to me as such a shock. I was like, well, wait a minute. And I'm, not, I'm saying some of these women don't even have children. It's some have children. more relatable, I guess. Yes. Some have children. Some are married. Some are not married. Some never want to have children. Like It's a mix, like a, a very mixed pool of different women, varying in age. Like, I mean, talking mid-30s, early 40s, late 50s. But what happened in a very human way is that all these women looked at me and said, you are going to go through something very difficult, but you're not going to go through this alone. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Moms on the Grind podcast. This is your host, Sarah Desamores. Today is Thursday. I'm in a really good mood today, so I'm really happy to be um, presenting you this episode. So today we're going to have a friend of mine from Montreal, Canada named Noeli Sam. She is a creative. She is a consultant. She's a strong woman. You guys are going to learn a lot from her, so I can't wait for you guys to hear more about it. So on my side... You know, what's going on with me? I'm, I'm doing pretty well. You know, I had a more difficult week last week, does the episode that I did on not self-sabotaging. But this week is much better. So right now, you know, on my side, I hired my first assistant. You know, I really needed it. I'm like a year late, right, in hiring some some help when it comes to business. So she started this week part-time. So it's been a lot of training. I've been really, really busy. And because of that, I haven't been sleeping the best um, because, you know, when Eva goes to bed, that's when I finish my work. So, you know, remember in the mornings I have to homeschool. This is usually my most productive time. But now um, I have to work more like in the afternoons and at night when she goes to bed. So I've been a little bit tired. I haven't worked out as much as I usually do. But it's okay. You know, it it happens. So another thing is that a book that I'm reading, I'm currently reading a book that was highly recommended by a couple of friends and people on Instagram. I'm reading Outliers. So I'm probably like a third into the book, close to halfway, and I'm very like, it's like a love and hate relationship with this book. It's like I love it, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, what's your point, right? So like, are you just trying to say that if you don't come from a good environment that you can't do well in life, you know what I mean? So it's just like, I'm a little bit like, I love it. I love the examples. I love the history in it that they're presenting. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, what's your point? So maybe, you know, it'll get better as I go along, you know, as I'm... I go further into the book. But up to now, I'm very, like, I love it, but I hate it at the same time. How I'm feeling at the moment, I'm a bit tired, but in a good mood. It's funny, right? So something that I'm grateful for, and this is really funny, I'm really grateful for good food. I've always, you know, I'm a, I'm a foodie. I love good food. I love eating out. And this week, um, I got food at one of my favorite Greek restaurants called Meraki, and we use the leftover chicken to make like a Spanish rice. It's just, I'm just like, I don't know if I have like a crazy day and a busy day and I have really good food at the end of the day, I just feel better. It's, it, you know, it, it's my thing. I'm just really grateful for great food. So 
One of the reasons I chose Noelie and what I've learned from her is that she, this woman, I have seen her just go after what she wants and not give a fuck, not give a damn about who's doing what, especially in the fashion industry. You know, back in the days, I used to be a blogger and she was a blogger as well. And I just watched her like, wow, this girl just goes after what she wants. She makes sure that she's first row at Miami, at not Miami, I'm sorry, at Montreal Fashion Week. She was everywhere. Her style, you know, she would walk into a room and you could feel her presence. So I love how she was able to create a, a space for herself regardless of any type of competition or what other people were doing. Okay, so who is Noelie, right? So before Noelie Sam became an entrepreneur, she had her share of obstacles to overcome. From surviving the civil war in Congo, Brazzaville, emigrating to Canada, learning a new culture and language, and embracing cold winters, which led to being uns- to her being unsure about what studies to pursue in university, to messing up her credit score, we've all been there, to going from jobs to jobs to find her path, Noelle's story is the perfect example of how anybody can overcome the obstacles in their life and find a way to achieve their goals through determination, faith, and discipline. She is a lifestyle entrepreneur, personal brand consultant, and podcast host, a former high-performance corporate manager and top Canadian fashion blogger. This is how I met her. She is the founder of Unfolded Unfolded Media, a women-focused platform on a mission to empower ambitious women and help them make an impact. She recently launched the Boss Woman Unfold podcast. She is the recipient of the Best Use of Twitter Award from the Montreal Fashion Bureau and the Notable Award for Best in Social Media Quebec. By the way, the Notable Awards, when I used to live in Montreal, these were awesome. Noelie is a full-time working mom to a beautiful daughter, driven to make an impact on the rise of women to the top levels of companies. Guys, meet Noelie Sam. Some people don't know that back in the days, even when I was working at the bank and was in university, I had a blog. So I was invited to all of the fashion stuff. I was invited to Fashion Week, et cetera, et cetera. And this is actually how I met you, Noelie, also known as back in the day you were a <laughs> Oh, Lord. Oh, good old times. Yes, yes. I met you on the uh, Fashion Week circuit in Montreal. And yeah, that was like over a decade ago because I had moved to Montreal from Ottawa. Okay. And uh, yeah, because originally I'm, uh, I'm Congolese from Congo, Brazzaville, Central Africa. I was born and raised there. Loved the heat. Never had to deal with summer unless we were visiting friends and family in France. Mm-hmm. But my mom immigrated to Canada and she fell in love with Quebec and opportunities that she felt was better for us in the long run. So she did all the paperwork. And next thing you know, in early 2000, we came to Canada. In April, it was snowing. It was traumatizing. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I hated and now I guess it. you're like used to it, right? You know what? I'm used to it and I've learned not to hate it. In a sense, because everything comes with, you know, plus and minus and where I was, like I've survived a civil war. And so when you, you know, weigh the pros and cons, okay, heat wave and summer all year, but dodging bullets or dealing dealing with the summer once in a while and have cold weather, but you're pretty much safe. So I think it became like a no brainer. And also because I'm very creative and entrepreneurial by nature, uh, North America is a better place for me. But yeah, so I moved here and we were in Ottawa. Ottawa was very uh, conservative and I really didn't enjoy it as much. And uh, when I started to have a passion for fashion, it was Toronto and Montreal that were 
options for me. And I moved to Montreal because at the time, my job uh, at the telecommunication company could transfer me. And when I came to Montreal, I started to cover fashion events. And I met you at Fashion Week and different lifestyle events. And uh, you were cool and always stylish. So I was like, who's this girl? That was kind of (laughs) my you know like and you you were I you were one of the people back in the days where I was like you know I had my blog it was like a food and fashion blog yes and you're with all fashion and you were one of the people like I looked at and I'm like these people are doing this fashion and communication and PR thing full-time this is awesome you know yeah. at the, yeah. I was more scared to do anything that was creative or self-employed full-time and yeah you know I you for doing that at the time where nobody was doing it that's at the <laughs> in the blog release, remember Oh, no, I definitely remember. And you're right, because what, what people don't, a lot of people don't know, because I haven't really talked a lot about it yet, is that the backstory of it is I started the Miss Lie, the blog, I started it when I was working full time. So it was like my passion on the side. And it started to take so much of my energy and interest and focus that I started to lose interest in my full time job. And ultimately, later on, I ended up getting laid off. So when I got laid off from my actual job, it was a great opportunity for me to say, okay, if you really mean you really want to do this, this could be a one chance to go all in. It could be because now you have nothing holding you back. You have no excuses. And it was scary. It was uncertain. And it was really, really honestly, like looking back, it was a very naive. But I believe that it takes that level of care, like, like carefree, uh, free spirit sometimes to start something bold because if you have to look at everything logical, I mean, the logic thing is to go get a job and pay your bills or starve a little, fit into the one size, uh, the s- small fashion size for a season or two and figure it out, you know. So I did it full time. Yes, it was at the early, like early, early days of blogging. Like, I mean, there was no Instagram, but uh, I was all in because I figured if I wanted to give myself a shot, I had to do it that way. But it wasn't easy. You know, you say it wasn't easy. That's something that I'm kind of like going ahead of everything. But, you know, I used to live in Montreal and I moved to the U.S. And so when some people ask me what's one of the differences I noticed, you know, between the two countries, you know, there's mm-hmm. a million. But one of the things I noticed in the U.S., mm-hmm. there's more push and there's more resources for entrepreneurs, right? Mm-hmm. So I, found, I find that in Canada, we're a little bit late with that. Well, not necessarily mm-hmm. in Canada. In Montreal, particularly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where I found that we were a little bit late with that. So the fact that you did it, although we're as a society, I think that we're late. You know, just tell me a little bit about that. Like, did you get some support? How was I? Um, what the the truth is, when it happened, uh, when I decided to go full time, and when, I had, when you were full time, what were you doing exactly full time? Also, full time. The first thing I was doing is I had started a fashion blog, and my goal was to be a an independent freelance fashion journalist, really. So pitching my articles, reaching out to publications, reaching out to brand designers to cover their stories in a journalistic and event coverage point of view. And for me, because I come from a like my dad is a journalist, so I think by DNA. I, I was, I'm a communicator by DNA, like just by nature, I do that well and I enjoy it. And I wanted a cover story. So I would reach out to PR companies. And at a time that people were not doing it a lot, I just felt like it was the normal thing to do. Like I'd contact Joe Fresh PR company when he had first opened the store in Montreal and go and have the first interview, sit down with him, do my research properly. And then I would basically pitch my articles to different outlets. 
When I started to realize that outlets were not necessarily keen into purchasing articles from freelancers that they had no history or background from, it became very clear to me that I had to figure out to create a lane for myself. I wasn't going to make money being paid as a journalist, not having studied journalism or being into the fashion school of business. You know what I mean? So I had to come up with a plan. And my plan was, okay, how much can I get paid and how much ads money can I get on my blog through my own content? Interestingly enough, a lot of my my paid contract came from Toronto. A lot of my paid contract, whether it was like Scotiabank sponsoring uh, for photography fashion event or LG sponsoring Fashion Week in Toronto, I'd get paid contracts to cover certain designers and certain outlets like that. And essentially, you had to become like to figure out influencer marketing before influencer marketing was a thing. Literally, it was like, okay, so I got all these products that they're sending it. They're sending me to do a giveaway. I have to figure out like I'm not going to pay my rent with mascara. I'm not going to pay my rent with shoes. I need to figure out how to make it work. You know, because I didn't have to buy clothes. I didn't have to buy makeup. I still don't really do a lot of it because in a sense, shopping has lost its value to me because I realized that you can get it without spending the money. And I had to figure out how do I do this? So I had to negotiate with brands on my own and say, all right, so you want me to do a giveaway for how many days? How many hours? Okay, so how much work is it going to go into it? How many people can I reach and come up with numbers on how to get paid to do it? Ultimately, it was good, but, and like you said, you're jumping ahead and stuff, and that's fine, but what really came, became very clear to me coming from the corporate world, because it's not like I was a creative that just decided I'm going to go and follow my dreams. I had a corporate job making a really seriously good salary with bonus at the end of the year, traveling across Canada as a training manager for the company at the time. I knew what making $30 an hour plus bonus at the end of the year looked like for a lifestyle, right? So you go from that to being a creative that barely makes money, but you have all the cupcakes, champagne, and free shoes. It didn't add up. So when you talk about Canada not having a lot of resource for entrepreneur, especially back then, I stumbled upon a program that's called Le Sage, Le Sage en Affaires. And it's, uh, I think at the time was financed by Employment Quebec. The whole thing is like a mini version, a government version of Shark Tank. You basically go, you pitch your idea, and if it's viable, they finance you and they give you a grant for one year to start your business. So I when didn't I know did, about that. that's awesome. I stumbled upon it at the lowest point in my financial life. I was so low into my finance that I thought, okay, something's got to give. The blog is good, it's fun, and I've been doing it for almost five years now. That was 2012 because I started Miss Sly in 2008. I was like, okay, this is good, but this is not going to make me rich. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I want to build wealth and you have all these dreams, you watch The Devil Wears Prada. I've, I went to New York Fashion Week and I just understood that the reality is, like you said, Canada was behind. And what was happening in the States, I had attended the New York Fashion Week, the Independent Fashion Blog Conference, where I was able to see people like uh, Iman, uh, uh, Alisa Lich from DKNY PR girl to realize, oh my goodness, if I really want to do this, I probably have to move to the States and just make it happen there. But if I'm in Canada, what do I have? So I found out about Le Sage when I was looking for financial support because I knew that this, whatever my savings were dwindling down. And I was like, okay, it's fun to be a size zero because I'm not eating a lot, but at the same time, it's not cute. You know what I mean? And so <laughs> I, I found Lesage and 
the requirements where you had to have no revenue, no sustainable, like substantial revenue, and not be eligible for EI. And I wasn't anymore. So it's like, okay, now what? So you have to pitch your idea. So EIB employment insurance. Okay. Employment insurance. So I wasn't eligible for that. And I had been really just managing things on my own. So I could prove that my revenue was okay, but not enough. And I pitched my idea that the time was, I was using Twitter a lot. I was using Facebook a lot. There was not Instagram as much. And because I was doing a lot of coverage for fashion brands, I had realized that a lot of designers were not able to promote themselves properly using social media. They were on social media and their PR were doing most of the work, but they were not really um, maximizing the use of social media as a marketing tool. Coming from a sales and training background, I thought, you know what, if I can combine my sales experience with my understanding of social media with then my love for fashion, I think I'm the best person to help them use social media for their brand. So I pitched the idea at the Sage to start a consulting firm for a fashion and lifestyle brand to use social media for their branding and marketing. And that was in 2013. So when I pitched the idea and I had my little research, I had my numbers, I proved what I had done with Miss Sly on social media, how many views I had on the blog, the fashion and full discussion, everything was, listen, I'm on the social media platform. There's interest. Canada's behind, but five years from now, everybody's going to be on it. And it's going to be a central point for your marketing, period. And my research were there. I had done the homework and they were like, yep, we're giving you the money. So I ended up receiving the equivalent of $15,000 broke down in per month for one year to start as a consultant. And that's how I actually switched from just having a blog closing the blog and then transitioning into the full-time consultancy. I mean, looking back, perhaps it was also a way to just keep the blog going along with it, but I felt like it was too much. And uh, I just started to be uh, disillusioned about the actual state of fashion in Montreal or Canada. Things became quickly like a farce. And I felt that people were just doing it to keep up with the Joneses, that there was no real fashion industry and I was just like, no, I'm not going to be part of something that's just trying to be something. I'm going to go make something of myself. Isn't that a loaded answer? <laughs> no, that's amazing because, you know, and when you said, uh, just give me a little bit more, um, not more information, but just be, being a little bit more specific about it. So around which year was it that you started your blog? And when you were talking about, you know, you were using social media and other people were using social media, but the wrong way, which social media channels are you talking about? Essentially Twitter. I started my blog in 2007 and by 2008, I was really pushing it in Toronto first. Then I moved to Montreal in 2009 and it's in 2009 that I started to push Miss Lai in Montreal as well. By April, 2009, Twitter was already there, but I started to use Twitter then. And what I realized is that Twitter was such a great platform for online conversations whenever you would go like i would go to events in new york or in toronto people were not asking for your business card anymore people were literally saying, oh what's your twitter handle and i was like wait a minute they want your twitter handle but they don't care about your business card that's actually good because they're going to follow you right away so twitter became an essential part of positioning myself into the fashion industry and gaining a lot of followers organically. Actually, people who shook your hand, met you, and then uh, followed you. 
Twitter was perfect in comparison to Facebook because you could literally use Twitter as a phone platform where you could direct message someone, like a text message. So if you had met someone from a brand or you had met like an executive and you wanted an interview with their client, it was easy to do quick follow-ups. And for me, it was amazing because I was building a name for myself and any platform that could provide me with ex, you know, extra resource to network on such a personal level was amazing. So Twitter was good for those type of conversation and reaching out to people outside of my direct sphere. I could be in Montreal and tweet someone in Dallas or exactly. someone in San Francisco. And that's what I did. Like Fashion Unfold, the conversation that I started was purely a Montreal initiative that had a global audience. Oh my God, let me talk about this. So, you know, the, the thing with Twitter that people don't understand to this day is that, you know, now we have Instagram or whatnot, but back in the days, there was no Instagram. It was only Twitter, right? It was and only Facebook, Twitter. And Facebook wasn't what it was today. And No, I, Facebook even got nervous because they were trying to buy Twitter, but it didn't work out. It still doesn't work. There's the Facebook, mm -hmm. the, the ones that are using Facebook like Twitter are not doing the right thing. So. No, 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 no. Twitter <laughs> was time, awesome. Actually, when I met you, one of my jobs I was working with designers for Fashion Week was to manage some of their Twitter. And mm -hmm. I remember when you came up with a hashtag fashion unfold. So if you could mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about that and, you know, how you came up with this idea and what type of reach you had that was, I, I believe, international. Yeah, no, for sure. Fashion unfold is the result of first when I started Miss Light as a blog, I was doing a lot of interviews for designers. And what I realized when I would go backstage and talk with designers and we had a heart-to-heart -heart conversation, it was hard to translate that into an article because, like you said, there was no Instagram live. There were no video support where you could really translate what's happening right there at the moment. Twitter was good for that because you could literally live tweet an event step by step, minute by minute, as just anything that people can just follow reading your tweets and know what's going on. Like To get out of fashion a little bit, I'm a big tennis fan. And sometimes when I was at an event and I couldn't be in front of the TV to watch a tennis game because Nadal is playing, I, I had created a list on my Twitter where I could just follow people who were watching the game and live tweeting the results point per point. So Twitter is that powerful if you know how to use it. So we start. I, I remember coming back from Toronto Fashion Week and feeling that it was close to the time where I started to feel like we weren't doing a good job as journalists and bloggers to really promote designers. Uh, people had become more self-centered with selfies coming into the picture. And people would go to Fashion Week. Yes, they would talk about the show, but essentially it was to show off themselves, talk about what they're wearing, and essentially using the Fashion Week as a platform to promote themselves, not to promote the designers. And for me, that became a little bit uh, of a... a an issue I wanted to resolve, and I thought of having a conversation surrounding things that are not talked about. So I said, okay, we're going to talk about fashion, yes, but we need something that's unique enough that if people look for the hashtag, because, I mean, we're talking 2010, I already understood that if you had a specific hashtag, it would be easier for people to find your content. So it had to be unique. So I brainstormed with a friend from Toronto, and we came up with the word Fashion Unfold. And then out of nowhere, one Tuesday afternoon, started a discussion asking one simple question. The question, I think, was about uh, arts and uh, arts fashion week from Toronto and how what we see on, on the catwalk is beautiful, but it's not going to translate into commercial sales. So the designer is basically throwing money into the fire and they will be starving and broke 
and living out of their cars, and we will have beautiful pictures for our feeds. So what do we think about it? Do we think we're being, you know, of service or we think that we're using the industry? So the discussion started like that. And next thing you know, we have people joining from New York, from L.A., from Paris, I'm talking top bloggers like Brian Boyd chiming in because we were talking about bloggers starting to be represented by agencies when the influencer marketing started and how this was going to probably shift the fashion industry in a more commercial way because bloggers were supposed to be the anti-magazine independent voice. But if they're represented by big company, they're just becoming pawns for the magazine. So it became such a huge thing that the reach sometimes per debate would be in like million of impressions organically and completely zero marketing money behind pure movement from a community having a voice and pushing the message forward. And uh, it lasted so many years. I learned so much from how to build a community, how to engage people and how to use a platform to its maximum to a point where I think Montreal fashion uh, bureau had a, award season i think in 2014 and they awarded fashion and fold the best use of twitter award because it, there was no other company in montreal in the fashion industry who was using twitter to its maximum capacity like that and sometimes when i look back i think that if we were in new york it'd be a completely different conversation because people there understood what it was about montreal was a little more lukewarm to it and so yeah Twitter was and still is a powerful platform. I think what Twitter missed out on is maximizing when they introduced Periscope and they were trying to do uh, video and live. They just didn't, they didn't transition well and fast enough. And then it became more of a platform for media and celebrities. But uh, no, Twitter was definitely hot from 2009 to early 2014. Yeah, yeah, well, Twitter is, Twitter is still a place where you can reach people more easily yes. than other social media channels, right? So did, were you able to, Absolutely. you know, while you were on Twitter, did, were you able to reach out to people? Did you get some opportunities because of that? You know, tell me a bit about it. Yes. Yes, I, I sure, I, I definitely did. Uh, one thing that I'm very proud of Twitter is, I don't know if you remember DKNYPR Girl, the character that was basically the avatar representing DKNY on social media Never. and yeah. it, it was it was their communication and communication vp uh, marketing uh, head executive she was the avatar and the person behind uh, dkno pr girl and she was a big fan of gossip girl listen gossip girl would not be gossip girl and scandal would not be scandal without twitter because these platforms were like like that platform was one of the reasons why the community grew so strong so for me i use twitter to build really good relationships and I remember reaching out to DKNY PR girl and asking her for some information in regards to something I was launching. And she right away got into the DM. She followed me and we started a conversation. We even had her on Fashion Unfold. So from there, I was able to go to New York, host a Fashion Unfold debate in New York. At the beginning, when WeWork was just starting in New York, we were able to get into WeWork to host an in-person roundtable for Fashion Unfold. It was exciting because, I mean, this is WeWork office on Wall Street. Like, how amazing is that? You're from Montreal. You go to New York, not just in New York. You're at WeWork on Wall Street to host a live fashion uh, conversation. Oh, forget it. Forget it. 
especially in Montreal. Yeah, yeah. So I remember when we did that, uh, it was in 2015, I reached out to the Montreal Fashion Bureau for their help and see if they wanted to support the initiative because we're from Montreal and we're invited to do something big like that in New York. How much do they want to ride the wave? You know what I mean? And, you know, there was no financial support. They just, they supported us differently in ways to like write about it, do an article about it. But it was just to show the difference between, you know, Americans love to do everything big and, uh, that's when I realized, okay, the fashion industry uh, in Canada is not at the level of, let's say, New York or Paris. Obviously, we know that. But if you really want to make it, there is so much more that needs to happen. And personally, I felt that I was passionate about it. But I was, I'm also very uh, pragmatic and very practical. So if something becomes too iffy, I'm out of there because I don't want to waste too much time. But opportunities came. Twitter was definitely... Uh, uh, one thing that I, that taught me how to build relationship, maintain them, and connect with people beyond just a, you know an avatar or just your profile picture. And I still really love it. Like I wouldn't be where I am without Twitter for sure. And you know, so we talked about fashion and unfold, and you know, you did the blog, and then you shifted your business. What do you think prompted you to change and shift your business? You know, what you made. May, what made you want to gear more towards women? Because, you know, when we were working at Fashion Week, where we, when we met each other and working at fashion, you're dealing with both genders, right? Yes. Uh, so what was really something that, or maybe what happened progressively for you to mm. shift business, you know? And wh- which no, for sure. did you go to? Uh, when, I, I, when I got the funding for the consulting agency, I started to serve fashion and lifestyle brand, luxury brands. And uh, that's 2014 to just give you like a timeline. So by 2015, I'm still doing it. And I realized that fashion brands don't have a lot of funds. You have to deal with PR companies and there's a lot of middleman work and it's just not quite there. Uh, so I decided to expand my uh, portfolio and freelance with other agencies because you got to bring the money in, right? And so I bring in money from other agencies. I'm freelancing with other companies. And I serve still a lot of fashion brands, luxury brands, luxury cars, name it. So it's very much a wide range of clients, not just fashion luxury. And by 2016, I realized, okay, this is good. But if I really want to push myself, I have to really push my own banner, not just freelance. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to start my my own agency. And I don't want to call it Noelle Sam because that's just too obvious. I thought, you know what? I've enjoyed what I've done with Fashion Unfold and it's still going strong. So I'm going to do a spin-off of the brand and extend that. So I did, okay, Unfold and Media, a lifestyle, like a social media agency for fashion and luxury brand. I started that with that intention. And along the way, I've always worked a lot with women. Like I've always had, even as a fashion blogger, women, younger girls becoming like my interns. And there was also guys, like no problem. I never had like a bias against either gender. It just happened that I had a preference to work with younger girls because I could recognize myself in them and figure out that I could mentor them to get beyond what I could have accomplished with the right guidance. While I started working, a lot of my clients, without me realizing it, turned out to be women. And I'm talking women into the car industry, women at top executive it just so happened that it were women. Most most of my clients were women. And then I got pregnant. So when I got pregnant, I still went to all my meetings. I did all the work. 
And I had a very easy pregnancy in comparison to the horror stories I hear. My pregnancy was so easy and not really noticeable. I think actually we met in Montreal a few months yeah. before I gave birth, when you exactly. came to visit your family. And I was still on my grind. Actually, when you met me, I was printing stuff because I was going to Las Vegas for the magic show with Fashion and Vogue. So I was still doing my stuff and I gave birth. My, my daughter uh, was born at 35 weeks and she came so quickly. I didn't even realize I was in labor like at all. She came so quickly, so painlessly. I mean, besides the normal labor pain that we all experience, it was fairly easy to a point where my mom and sister are still mad at me. They're like, no, Ali, we can't believe it was that easy for you. No, it's not fair. You know, but I gave birth and I went back to work right away because I was self-employed, but at the same time, my daughter was supposed to be born in June and I had planned it because, you know, you think you have control. So I planned that my daughter's going to be born around June. I'm going to have time to finish the Grand Prix. And when she's born, I'm going to take some time off. <laughs> Psych. She came in May and actually it's her birthday God next week. Like, second she's God was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You think you're in control? Wait a minute. So she gets, she, she comes a month early. And I had already uh, commitments. Looking back, I'm sure I probably could have said, oh, I can't do it anymore. I have a baby. She's preemie, blah, blah, blah. But I was very lucky. She was fine. Like, we didn't stay longer in the hospital for her health or anything like that. It was okay. I got home and I went to host my client's event, a woman who's in the luxury interior design. We hosted her event successfully in the old port. Boom. Two weeks later, I'm at the Grand Prix and the Ritz Carlton, and I'm doing all these things as if I didn't have a baby. Not that I was being oblivious to being becoming a mom, but I was so such on an autopilot mode that it was just like, it's got to be done. I would go into the car, change the baby, leave her with my hubby, go back into my work. But gradually what happened is a lot of my clients turned from clients to women. In the sense, they became more of my supporters. They were literally the one to tell me, Noelle, we understand you still want to go full force. However, you just had a baby. And we get it. It's not going to be how you want it to be. You're not going to be able to give 200% because you just can't. However, we are going to hold your hand and we're going to get through it together. Uh, it, was, it came to me as such a shock. I was like, well, wait a minute. And I'm, not, I'm saying some of these women don't even have children. It's some have children. more relatable, I guess. Yes. Some have children. Some are married. Some are not married. Some never want to have children. Like It's a mix, like a, a very mixed pool of different women varying in age like i mean talking mid 30s early 40s late 50s but what happened in a very human way is that all these women looked at me and said you are going to go through something very difficult but you're not going to go through this alone and it really hit me and i paused and i said okay i have these women are really supporting me probably because i'm a woman and they get it right so how do I give back when I get a chance? How can I myself become more for other women? Because this, obviously, I couldn't go through it without women supporting me the way they did. And gradually, I started to really look at my business. And at some point, things started to feel a lot empty. Because I'm sure for you, who are, you have a daughter too, you, you're a mom. Life and your perspective is completely different after you have a child, most of the time. Either you become more aware of your vulnerabilities, of your power, of your purpose, 
your calling and suddenly everything becomes so much more serious. I mean, life is serious, but how often do we go about it and take it for granted and just kind of casually walk through it? And suddenly, boom, you get this wake up call. So my wake up call was becoming a mom and wanting to continue to um, perform at the highest level as an entrepreneur, understanding that things will be different. Yeah, it's not easy, you know, so no, it's, no, it's, it's easy not. because at the same time, I find that, you know, when you have children, it makes you it gives you more drive. Right. Because now you have to take care of another little human being. Right. And yeah. you want to give them the best life. So you have more drive. But then you have less time, right? <laughs> yeah, because something's got to give. Something's got to give. It's such an interesting, um, it's such an interesting dynamic, you know. And Absolutely. Well, wait, what you're doing now, now you're consulting women. So, if you could give me more details about what it is exactly you'll consult a client about, mm-hmm. how you're able to mix that, you know, with being a mother, you, you know, are you able to do virtual things or whatnot? Just tell us exactly what you do. And, you know, if you could give us an example of a client you have and how you've helped them, that would really, really help. It would probably help me too, because I'm looking at you. <laughs> no, for sure. <laughs> Um, the one thing for sure that when, when I started the agency, I was doing social media strategy. So essentially is bringing in a client, looking at their online presence or the lack thereof and preparing a plan for their social media content from creating the content, the visuals, the video, if we have to, to establishing a social media calendar with a strategy of what message do they want to amplify, push, share, and so forth. When I started to flip to more a women focused approach, it was, okay, what is the why? Why do I want to do this? And how do I want to help women? To answer your question, it became very clear to me that I was very much equipped to help ambitious women clarify their message and promote their personal brand online to eventually monetize it. So I take an example of an interior design woman. She's a luxury interior design She's been in the industry and she's been doing it for a long time. When we started, my job was with the company was to create social media content for her Facebook, Instagram, and a little bit on her LinkedIn. But the point was, here's the projects that she did, the house that she's decorated, like a million dollar home, kind of like the, the client, the real estate clients of that that you show. That's why I like to watch your feed, uh, look at your feed sometimes, because I feel like my clients could probably become your clients in a way. Um, oh, so no I, way. <laughs> you never know. And she actually has uh, one of her, she actually has properties in Florida that she sold and she actually renovated for clients who are selling him. So I was working on her social media content. So when I did the switch, I approached her and said, okay, what I think I'm better equipped to do than just posting on your Instagram, it's help positioning you as the businesswoman that you are so that you could either attract events to book you as a speaker, if that's what you want to do. Or you could sell your expertise because you want to, you know, film online presentation, online courses, or you want to be like more of a philanthropist and you want, you have different board positions that need to be highlighted based on the activities that you do. So it's almost becoming more of a PR person for a PR, for a personality. So I'm the person that's going to help you shape your identity, your message and your positioning. We're going to take, for example, you your LinkedIn account and say, okay, what are the things that you're really passionate about and how do they translate in your industry? So you're a woman, you're an interior design, and you're extremely passionate about women empowerment through financial freedom. You are on the board of three foundations who support women 
or who support education. So now we need to see what these industries and those boards are doing, sharing that content, creating articles, interviewing her, and really positioning her as an expert in her field with experience to back it up so that people can then reach out to her and say, oh, okay, we want to hire XYZ for an event. We want her on our, our board and so forth. So I essentially work a lot on creating the content that fits the message of my client and help them find which platform is best suited for their message and their brand DNA. And it's really, yeah, that's basically in the nutshell what it is. It's it's really important that what we say because for some, depending on what business you're in, LinkedIn might be better, or Instagram might be better, Absolutely. Twitter might be better. Absolutely. Really depends Absolutely. On, on what type of people you're trying to reach, right? Yes. So, and the type of and your personality too, because if you're someone who's not like one of my clients, she's not comfortable in front of the camera, even though what she does is very beautiful, and she could benefit with Instagram lives. She's not comfortable doing that, so it's going to be more curated for her. Meaning, articles on LinkedIn is the best approach for now. Maybe later on when she's comfortable and we've done a lot of tests and practice because I do like v virtual uh, consulting. So if it's by video, we rec I record the session and I ask her questions and virtually she can see the recording after and say, okay, yes, I'm comfortable now. I think I've nailed it. I have some triggers here and there, but it's a process. And some people may be very bubbly and they're okay to do Instagram right away. So it's also understanding what is the best thing for your client and what are they most comfortable at that moment in their life. And one thing that I wanted to ask you about, so when you manage, so I, I do my own social media, right? I do mm -hmm. my own, right? And you're doing really well, Sarah. Oh, thank you. You're doing well because it's authentic. I can still recognize you. I can still understand that you mean business, but you're also fun and you enjoy a good life. Oh and my I goodness. think, yes, no, you, you're doing a very good job because like just at the beginning of the quarantine, like I know you love your wine. And at the beginning of the quarantine, you shared that uh, video of that guy that was, you thought he's cheering with a bunch of people, but he's in front of a mirror and he's cheering himself. Yeah, that was so funny. Oh Do you God. know how many times I watched it and laughed? Me too. And just, I watched just, it oh. almost every day. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it was like, oh, this is so Sarah. This is so funny. Right. I think you're doing a good job because you're being authentic and you also understand that you want to be professional. So you're doing good. Ah, thank you so much. And, you know, speaking of being authentic, right? So when you go and you help people with their social media, right? So one of the things I'm really big on is engagement, right? So yes. the way I was able to convert people is because I personally respond to DMs. I personally yes. respond to comments, right? So yes. let's say you're managing a, an account for someone. How do you deal with engagement? You have to ask first at the beginning what type of community your client wants to build. If it's a one-on-one -on -one type of community because the person wants to build an audience that she wants to convert and monetize down the road, then you are to be present and answer every comment in as much in the voice of your client so that it's not a disconnect when the client does it. So at the beginning, a few of my clients, because most of them are like, I would say more seasoned women, they're not as comfortable as we are on social media. And often they're, they will freeze like this is like I'm talking women that are commanding millions of dollars and having big board meetings, but then they're in front of Instagram and they don't know what to do. Right. So it's giving them the confidence and explaining to them what the difference is between the private message and the type of reach that they want to have. So the engagement is really creating that dialogue between their audience and themselves and then answering it at the beginning for them, because some clients will hire me to manage the account and others will hire me to help them 
manage themselves. So it's going to be like a little bit of both, but the engagement is key as to creating that conversation. And it all goes down to what they share. If you share something that's not compelling to your audience to communicate with you, it doesn't matter how much engagement you want. If it doesn't resonate, they're not going to engage. So it's really creating content that's obviously relatable and understanding what the client really wants. So it's it's a mix of all of that. So basically, will you tell a client, depending on how they are, what type of people they're trying to reach, right? Let's say, and let's take the interior designer example, right? Yes. We know that the interior designer with their post, they could get clients. You encourage them to respond to their own DMs and respond to the messages, to the comments, I'm sorry? I definitely encourage them to do that. And if they're not comfortable, I will do it. And what I will do is I'm going to answer and every single answer is shared with the client, screenshotted. Basically, I say, here's the question we received. Here's the information we received. And here's how I'm going to reply to it. Would you like to change something? Here's what I think we should say because of the outcome we are looking for. And so it's a really like it's a teamwork. I'm never going to go and reply without the client knowing what's going on. And the client will have a chance to say, instead of that, maybe say this. So it's really like a teamwork, but it's more of getting them comfortable to understand that they can do it themselves too. True, true. Because if, if they're not comfortable, they're never going to do it. So No. And, <laughs> and honestly, there's so many, like I see one of them that I've guided a lot. Now she's on stories all the time. Sometimes I message her and say, okay, this was good. This was maybe not necessary. But it's always good to see how they break through. And, you know, we were talking, you were talking about the virtual, you know, you're able to do virtual consultations and whatnot. So, you know, when did you become, a when you became a mother, right? So yes. how old is your kid? Tell me a little bit about your kid. How old, you know, how old she's, uh, she's going to be two years old next week. Awesome. Yes. Two years already. I can't believe it. She's still breastfeeding. Uh, she was born in an ambulance on our way to the hospital. So oh she's God. basically, yes. Oh, she's That's a warrior. She, <laughs> she came out so fast. She was born in the ambulance on our way to the hospital Friday night downtown. So she was ready to party. Um, she uh, She's a mix. So her father is Mohawk. He's Mohawk and a North American native. And it's interesting for me because I'm Congolese African. So I'm definitely non-white. Her father looks white, looks Greek or Italian, but he's non-white. And to understand the similarities that I find between our culture, even some of, some of the cooking is very interesting because she's going to have these two backgrounds and she's born in Canada, so she's Canadian too. It's going to be very interesting to raise her and to see what she's going to be interested in life later on, where she's going to want to maybe relate more to certain things. I mean, physically, when you see her, she has very pronounced features and it's like okay because my sister has mixed kids too they're like european and congolese but it's very interesting to see like a mix between a native and a black person and uh, i think that it's going to be interesting especially for me like on how to raise her and make her understand her culture from her father's side and on my side what i love right now is the mix of the cultural food because i did not know that but natives are big on cooking too and they, they eat a lot of meat. So if you're vegan, it's a bad idea. <laughs> to go. I, will, I, will, I will come hang out with you guys anytime. <laughs> no, for sure. Like it's a lot of cooking. Like uh, my husband does a lot of cooking. Like when I talk about making bread from scratch, he does that. Like he bakes bread. Like I love baking. I love cooking. But I have zero patience as far as baking bread. He'll prepare the dough and all that because that's something they do culturally. And also one thing I found out is that 
um, native, especially Mohawk, they're a matriarchal society. So yes, the, the, the men are like play a big role, but the mothers are basically like the anchor of the family. So it's interesting to see because I come from a patriarchal society, like African men are like the head and everything else. So it makes it interesting to mix both in the household and then finding our own DNA in it. Sometimes it's, a, it's something that requires a lot of flexibility and patience because when you're set in your own ways and now you're challenged to do things differently, nobody loves change. No one loves that, right? But you have to adjust and figure out what's going to be the best way for our household. So that's definitely something that I work on every day, every day, <laughs> every day. It's really interesting, though, because although it's work and that's something that, that that's the number one thing I miss about Montreal is mm-hmm. the cultural diversity. Because it, it's honestly, you might see that a little bit in New York or in other states. But Montreal, I mean, everyone you meet almost is mixed or has an interesting story or that's true. maybe dating someone that's a completely different nationality and religion and background. And it's like that's everyone true. blends in. And that's what I love so much about the culture. Every people are open, right? You're very have, open. I never, you know, and I say that to people here, and sometimes they don't believe me. I have never felt racist. It's racism, you know. In terms, mm. I never felt in Montreal, and it it might be a different experience for for you or for different people. But I was born and raised in Montreal. You know, I had some people ask me, "Oh, let me touch. Can I touch your hair or whatnot?" But it was more Korean. Yeah. Right. No, I never for sure. Felt, like I mean, that happens. I, like I, I never felt happens. like I couldn't get a job, or I I, I wasn't <coughs> sufficient to have a, a job or whatnot because mm-hmm. of my color. No, no. I, I you know what? Like when I tell you that my mom came to Canada, she came because she had a uh, a scholarship with uh, McGill University actually, because my mom by training is a geologist, and she came here with a train a scholarship because she had to study the soil, Vancouver, BC, everywhere. She fell in love with Canada, and one of the main reasons is my mom had already been in France. She had been in France as a student, as a mother, as a wife, and she knew the realities in France. And she was like, you know what? Between Africa, that's unstable, Congo at the time, Congo Brazzaville, and France, that's very racist, but in a way still not quite open to change. She saw Canada, and I'm talking Canada in the early 90s, not even now where it's super mixed. I'm talking early 90s. She still felt that it was a better option for us in the long term. So I'm here now, and I've been in Ottawa first for like nine years and then moved to Montreal. I was working in a telecommunication company, one of the biggest company in Canada, and started on the phone taking phone calls. I was a very good salesperson. I still am. Like I feel like sales is just something that if you understand people's needs, it's something you can naturally do. I was really good, and my talent and my work ethics got me to the top of the ladder. And it was not about, oh, I'm black, I'm not going to get the job, or I'm a woman, I'm not going to get the job. Like I'm sure maybe there were some opportunities that were I was overlooked, but not to the point where the discrimination was so real and palpable that I felt like I couldn't move on and I couldn't go on with my life, right? Same so, yeah. you know, like even in the fashion industry, like, I'm sorry, but even if the money wasn't as good, getting in, being persistent, having work ethics, having talent and doing your networking, you would still get somewhere. Like I wouldn't be able to start my business and be self-employed and thrive as good as I do right now, if I was in France, there, first of all, administration wise, there's so much more to do. And just my mom is back in France right now. And she keeps reminding us, you can come to visit because some of our family members are there. 
But just remember how good you have it in Canada. Just remember. And you know what? In Canada, you, you don't see it until you leave. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. When I was there, you know, when I grew up there, I never thought of that. It's really when I moved to the States where, you know, in Miami, people say that um, it's very um, multicultural. Right. Yes, it is. But it's all cl it's all very cliquish. Whereas cliquish. Mm -hmm. I see more blends. Right. So. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on top of that, you're a mother. Right. So it's not in yeah. a country that they encourage women or mothers or you know, to still work really hard while they have the kids. So, you know, you're and not only that, you're in the creative space. So yeah. being mother in the creative space, what are some challenges? What are some challenges that you've been faced with, continue to face? In a creative space, I think the first thing, first as a mom, like the first, the biggest challenge that then affects everything else is time. Time, 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 or the lack thereof, not having enough time to yourself to just sit down and be creative, not having enough time to get things done, deadlines, um, that's where the big challenge is. So now as a creative, because I'm in the space where you create content, you create uh, materials that people can use, my biggest challenge, I think, was on a personal level, understanding how to reposition myself. Because as simple and as crazy as it is, I started single by myself pushing. I mean, the positioning, the branding is like you're like you're a hustler. You're on your grind. Correct. You're doing your thing. You're pushing yourself. Then you're pregnant and then you have a baby. Now you're a mom. How do I continue to be me with this new definition, this new, you know, I guess there's iPhone to my name. Like, how do I continue to be me with this new baggage? How do I reposition? Because I'm all about, I'm always thinking about branding <laughs> and I'm always like, okay, how is this being branded? But now I had to ask myself, well, how much authentic do I want to become? And is there room for me as a mom to still be creative and still be quote unquote fresh? You know what I mean? So that was interesting for me to navigate. It took me a year to, first of all, I never even announced that I was pregnant or that I had a baby. Yeah, if you met me in person, so I would... You know, I was like, what? <laughs> what happened? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you would meet me in person, I'd say it, but I would never put it online because first I just didn't know how to how to navigate that because I just never started social media with having a family in mind and sharing the two. But once I had a baby and I had my first Mother's Day, blah, 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 a year later, I said, you know what? I'm going to share it because I'm going to take me as if I was my own client. And how would I help Noelle be her best self at this stage in her life? What's really important to me? So it's not about what challenges I was facing as far as the career. It was how do I continue to do my best while really understanding the season that I'm in right now? So that means if I'm getting invited to all these events, it's no longer feasible for me to go because I have to put the baby to sleep and I'm breastfeeding. So the number one challenge was how do you continue to network while being away? And that's where having real connection and relationship really came to play. Because if I had built superficial relationship with people, when the time came that I disappeared for like a period of time and I was not in this event scene and going everywhere, you can easily be forgotten, right? But because I had taken the time to build strong relationship, it was easy for me to go back and just start to connect with people differently. And social distancing is now a thing. But to me, I always say, like, I feel like I've been social distancing and being in confinement for like the year and the last year and a half since I've had a baby because she's full time with me. I chose not to put her in daycare, at least for the next three, four years of her life. 
because I just want to make sure that I establish a strong base as long as I can. And so I was already limited. So I started to use video calls and video meetings since 2017, 2018, because that was one way for me to continue to be in contact with people in the new reality that I was in. Uh, besides the relationship, the other challenge was how to have time to create relevant content and still keep up with, you know, the deadlines and everybody else. So for me, that's where really going at the core of why I'm here and what I'm doing became very important. If I can become clear on my why, I won't feel bad when I say no to an opportunity because I know that in the long term, it no longer applies. Like I've said no to events that I was called to host, that I was called to panel uh, discussions and I couldn't do it. At the beginning, it was hard to say no. Uh, one of my uh, most, I guess, uh, vivid memory of that season is I was hosting a panel for MMUD, the Montreal Fashion Bureau. And in the middle of the panel, my, my husband had the baby with a girl who was helping us with babysitting. But she came back <laughs> to the site where we were having the panel. And I was, I think, 20 minutes before the end of the panel, and I could hear the baby crying in the hallway, literally. Like, I'm on the panel, on the stage, and I'm hosting it, and they're the panelists, and I hear the baby. So everybody stops kind of like, well, was there a baby in this, you know, building? And I pause, and I just said bluntly to everybody, that baby is mine. If she cries a second time, I'm just going to have to stop and go get her. Like, out of, like, just in front of everybody. And I was getting paid to do the gig. And so... And obviously she cried a second time and uh, I basically looked at my partner who was co-hosting with me. I held her the mic and said, take it from here. I'm going to go take the baby. Everyone else see you at the end of the event and just walked out. I so at that, well, you know what? At the moment I did it, it was no longer a question of what are going to, what are people going to think that I'm abandoning the panel and I'm walking away and they're going to be like, obviously she's a, like all these things did not even cross my mind. It was just like, I'm not going to let my baby cry because we're having a fashion discussion, guys. I'm sorry. You know, and, and that's also the importance of adapting, right? Yeah. Yeah. All of that is adapting. And one thing I learned, too, is the importance of lunches and breakfast meetings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. So but I, feel like the, I feel like the connections are more serious during breakfast meetings and lunches than at night networking events. I don't know what you think about that. I think so, too, because you're still in work mode in a way. I think if you're at a lunch meeting, you're in work mode, you understand that you probably have to go back to work. So you kind of focus more on what's happening right now versus at the end. I think it's more like, OK, now we're in Senka set mode. We're just going to chill and have a glass of wine. I'll catch up with you tomorrow. Email me this, email me that at different levels, obviously. But I think that uh, breakfast and lunch meetings are great. These are the only meetings I take anyways. And um, if it's after 7 p.m., you have to have a very good reason why you want me. And I'm going to have to weigh the pros and cons. Like, it's, it just probably won't happen. When I launched Boss Women Unfold, the podcast, I did it between a cinq cassette. And I was very mindful. I think we did six to eight. By the way, was, cinq cassette is happy hour for... Happy hour French for Americans. French Canadian. <laughs> it is happy hour here because it's five to seven, guys. But we just say cinq cassette in, in the language. Thanks for that, uh, Sarah. But um, we did a six to eight event for the launch of the podcast, Boss Women Unfold. And when I did that, I was very mindful that people may or may not be there at that time. And it's baby sleeping time. But I wanted to do it six to eight to give people time to come from work and hang out. And honestly, it's the only event I've done in two years for myself. 
it was well, just you can do yeah. one, once in a while you know what I mean so you know I, I did that too some people ask me oh how are you able to network and I'm like well I did breakfast meetings and lunches or going for yes. coffee with people right yes yes that's always good like I've done all my meetings of coffee meetings lunch meetings there's no alcohol involved so it's like more serious too yeah no for sure like I, I definitely agree and I think it's like you said adapting is key and understanding that you do have to keep your sanity through it, through it all. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to bend too much in the direction of what they want you to do, but you're also not going to lose yourself in the process. So balancing it is hard, but keeping yourself in check and honest is important and uh, do what works for you. If for you it works to be at 7 p.m. because you have a kid that sleeps through the night, hey, go for it. If you rather do it at noon because the baby naps or whatever, my child is most of the time she's very quiet. Uh, so I've been able to take her to meetings where she would just sit in her stroller or play a little bit. That's before she could walk, obviously. <laughs> but uh, most of the time she would just be with her dad or a friend and I would do my meetings and then I finish and I come get her. But uh, you adapt. You absolutely have to adapt because one thing that's certain is things are going to continue to change. And the moment you think you have it figured out, they change They flip the, the script on you. So just keep adapting. Mm-hmm. And like your whole story, you know, from go, coming from Congo to coming to Ottawa, I mean, you've, I feel like you've adapted a lot, you know, in your life, but tell me about a moment where you felt scared. Oh, many moments. <laughs> Funny enough, I didn't feel scared during the war back in Congo because it felt like it was something. One, there was a civil war in my country in like 1997. I didn't feel scared about it because it was kind of like, I mean, Michael Jordan was playing for those who are like, I'm an 80s kid, right? So Michael Jordan was playing against uh, Utah Jazz at the time, I believe. And my, I was just like, I'm going to watch the game. And if the bomb hit us and we die, at least I'm going to die watching something fun. So I wasn't scared during the war. Oh One God. day, Yeah, I know. It's crazy. But I think I was younger too. So relating to death wasn't real. It's just like, I guess it'll happen. But one thing that really scared me is when... I, hmm, if I really think about like a true scary moment, when I got laid off, uh, when I got laid off from my company at the time, uh, the company I was working for before, like I go full on with the blog, I got laid off. And for the first time since I had been in Canada, I always had a job. Like I've always, the moment I came to Canada, I always worked because I, I wanted to really perfect my English because I'm French, like my native speak uh, language is French. But I always wanted to be bilingual. So when I got the opportunity to work, for me, it wasn't to make money. It was to practice my English. But that led me into always working. Even when I was in school, I always had a job. And sometimes I would quit. Sometimes you get layoff. But it was always like, I'm going to get the next job. I'm going to get the next job. It's okay. It's no big deal. But for the first time, when I got laid off from a job that I had kept for seven years, started from like taking phone calls, literally started from the bottom, now we're here type of situation, I was, for the first time, I asked myself, okay, what do I really want to do? And is what I'm trying to do going to work? I have no guarantee it's going to work. I don't have a business plan. Uh, I have savings that I'm, I know are not going to carry me through like three years if I need three years to figure this out. Um, I've been laid off in such an ugly way that I don't even want to go back and ask for a reference letter to get another job. And then... I'm in a new city because I moved to Montreal. It's still Canada, so I'm sure I'm okay. But what am I going to do and how am I going to make it work? I was super scared because I had no guarantee what it would be. Like I I had never been an entrepreneur before. I had never made money just by creating something, right? It was always you 
give a service, you, you know, you get a job and you get paid. You don't have to worry about all of that. So it was extremely scary. It was extremely frightening, really. And I just said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Nightmares, crying at night, figuring out, okay, this I tried didn't work. Okay, well, this worked for a short period of time, but now I have to start over again. It really got, like, I, 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 I stayed in a state of uncertainty, yet boldly moving forward all throughout the blogging era. Like, enti- like for the entire time, it was always like, oh, my God, this month we, I hit this many views. I think now I can negotiate this much for my giveaway or the ads. Okay, I'm going to go to the next level and the next level. But it was always frightening to do it. And it was really scary. And even scarier when I decided to close the blog. Then I was like, okay, that I thought I had that figured out. Now I'm closing this and now what? Okay, I'm going to apply for the funding and hopefully I get it. When I got it, I was like such a huge sense of relief and pride because it felt like everything I had gone through had paid off. And then it's not even like you think you finished. Now you're starting another adventure. Okay, now you got to keep clients coming. So I think I felt very scared when I first realized that I was actually going all in as an entrepreneur. I was very scared. And I just was so uncertain because no one in my family is an entrepreneur. And it's not in our culture. Like it's you go to school, you either become a doctor or a lawyer. I was elected to be a doctor. I just didn't like it. Um, But I had no previous experience that could tell me that it was going to be okay. None. So I started to just consume biographies like a mad woman, like biographies of successful people, books of thousand CEOs, like just so I could say, okay, if they made it, can I make it? If this story is real, then perhaps I can write my own story. But my goodness, is it scary? It's well, super you, scary. You overcame and I feel like you needed that to happen in your life for you to jump to the next, to, to go to the next level. Don't you think? I absolutely think that if you don't burn the bridges behind you, to go to the next level, you can always go back. You can always go back because when things get really uncomfortable, who wants to stay uncomfortable? But if you've messed up so much or that you've severed the ties so much that there's nothing to go back to, it's like a a relationship. If you're in a relationship where you sort of end on okay terms, it depends for people. Sometimes that's an open door for the person either or like a guy or girl or both girls, whatever, one of them to come back and try to do the booty call thing because the door isn't really closed, right? But not. I'm telling you, like, this is real. If you don't close that door, you leave it open for the, the stronger one to come take advantage of the weaker one. And that's true in anything. So if I hadn't severe the ties like that with my old job, for sure I was going to go back and get another job because I knew how much I could make on the market what I was worth of. And it's different for everybody, right? I'm not saying if you want to go and start something on your own, burn everything and lose and, you know, completely go in chaos mode. I'm saying that sometimes that's what it takes because I strongly believe that pain is a really great teacher. Like I believe it. Like sometimes the most painful experience are your best teachers because you definitely don't want to go back there. You don't want to go back to hurting the way you did. You don't want to go back to suffer the way you did. So you say, nah, nah. Once, but not me, not the second time, Satan, not today. Yeah, right? no, no diamond. Uh-huh, exactly. And the pruning is what gives the wine. Like you got to prune, you got to, pr- the pressure gives you the promise. And if you are pushed to your limit, 
you know what you're made of. And I believe that I've done my greatest work through pressure. Even after corona, like the coronavirus happened, I was like, okay, okay, so I know people are going to slow down. There's going to be less enthusiasm to buy products and stuff. Okay, maybe it's the time for me to offer a lot of free consultations, not because I have time to, dig, to, to just give free things, but it's more no charge for now because I think the connections are more important and we'll see how things move forward. And uh, I'm actually very hopeful about the post-COVID-19 uh, era. Same here. Same here. I just very, very hopeful about it. The COVID era is providing businesses a lot of opportunities to either make it or break it. Yes. And I feel like it's kind of also forcing people into the digital space. You know, we've been talking about it for the past, I would say, 15 years. And people, yes. still, people were still reluctant about it, right? People were still being H&M and Blockbuster. So no, now it's like, you're going to... Yeah reluctant and guess what the ones who have not adapted are die are gonna die because the yes. restaurants and the the all the things that i'm seeing surviving during these times are are businesses that that were on the dig- digital space they didn't have to create it from scratch they were already there yes so, yes they were already there and they just had to make to strengthen it and push more and, and i think that's i'm very hopeful about the post-covid 19 era because well it's like natural selections the weakest links will be left behind Yep. And if you're not strong enough or you're not, you're not innovative enough, you're going to use that as an excuse to just die. Oh, you know, COVID happened and there's no way I was going to keep up. You can probably die as you are, but give yourself a chance to be reborn differently. And uh, I think that's what I'm focused on. So, yeah, it's, I mean, entrepreneurship scares me every day, every day. There's not a day that I'm like, wow, I got this. Not a day. Every day I'm like, okay, so this is good, but how about that? But, but it doesn't stop me from growing. enjoying it. Yeah, but you see, yeah. that means you keep growing. And I feel like when you're an entrepreneur, if you stop growing, you're not thriving, right? So, yeah. you know, what piece of advice would you give to any woman trying to enter the creative space in 2020, right? Where should they start? Start with your why. Mm. Start with your why. Start with why do you want this? Because it's going to get tough. I mean, I believe in beginner's luck. The beginner's luck is real because when you start something, you need that momentum to keep going. So the beginner's luck is real at the beginning. You may get lucky. You may get a lot of deals. You may get noticed. That's awesome. But it will get hard because that's just life and everything comes in seasons. Know why you want this as clear as it gets. And it will change over time. But at the core, if you understand why you're entering it, that's what's going to sustain you. And then after you find out what your why is, understand what it would take for you to do this. Mm. See if you know, okay, you want to get into the creative space. Okay, what type of creative do you want to do? Okay, maybe you want to be a speaker, a content creator online, a speaker. But why? What's your message? What's your story? What do you have that could be an answer for others? Find out why. Like, what, you, like yeah, do ahead. you feel like what problems they need to solve also? Yes, because I heard it on a podcast yesterday. I think I was listening to the School of Greatness, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And he was interviewing another guy and he said, people will usually pay more for pain to be to soothe pain than to gain pleasure. So if people have a problem and you can solve it, that's more important for them than, oh, you have something that can be a pleasure, source of pleasure for them. So find out the pain point that you can that you can solve that you are an answer to. If you could figure that out, 
that already unlocks so much. And that's basically what I help my client do. I help women that I work with. I'm like, first, I want you to be like, if you're an ambitious, driven woman, you're already my type of girl, because that means there's so much I don't have to teach you and so much we don't have to discuss over. So you come in and why do you want to do this? And often your why is very on the surface. But if you dig deeper, you understand the true motivation. And most of the time it's rooted into our childhood. Sometimes, like I find that interesting, like my why is very much rooted into my nine year old. Because as a nine-year-old, I was a very sensitive and observant kid, very vocal. I'm the talkative kid that got in trouble in class because I was distracting people, okay? So I'm very talkative, very creative. I was very good in creative writing, always wanted to be entertaining people by telling stories. And I always found it interesting to be not the center of the attention, but the person that brought joy to others through stories or uplifted their spirit. That was just me as a kid. So today, if I'm going to do a speech, if I'm going to do a... Instagram live interview, if I'm going to do a podcast, if I'm going to create content, if I'm going to coach other women, I'm pretty much doing the same thing at a different level. But the reason why I do it is because I want that little girl to know that she arrived and she did something good for others. And my why is to have a greater impact for women at any stage of their life to know that whatever they're dreaming of is possible. It is possible, but you have to work at it. You have to be surrounded by the right people. You have to have the proper mindset. So my why is rooted into removing obstacles as much as possible from other women's path. Like I had to do it on my own the hard way. So how can I help you get there faster? Because I already made those mistakes. I already overcame those challenges. You don't have to. Okay, I do my decade review to make sure that I don't repeat the same mistakes next decade. So I'm literally right now, every woman I'm coaching, I'm asking them to do like an autopsy of their decade. Go over the last 10 years each year, highlight what you did good, what you did bad. Don't judge, don't blame, don't feel any guilt, but really go into it as in, how do I want my next decade to be awesome? And let's work towards that. So I think find your why, and that's your motivation to move forward. Because when it gets tough, because it will, it will sustain you. And at least it'll help you get some steam when you need it and the rest will come. But it's so important to know why you're doing it. Otherwise you're going to do it because your ego is driving you or you're trying to prove something to it's people. Like superficial. I mean, if you don't have a why it's all superficial, you know, I see so many people want to be an influencer, want to be yeah. a lawyer. They don't know why. So all no. of their content is BS. It's all bullshit, yeah. right? So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. You see, it's all fake. You see that they're only doing it just to see if they could get a quick buck. But yeah. what, when you don't have a why and you're doing something superficially, I find that you people give up more fast. Of course, they don't, because they don't you, persevere. Well, because when the moment things get really hard and you don't know why you're doing it, now you don't know why you should stay. <laughs> That's it. As simple as that. You don't know why you started. You're not going to know why you should stay and you're going to jump on the next thing. So for me right now, when I'm saying that I'm rooted into making an impact and helping other women navigate their life and achieve their dreams... It's because I don't, I don't see myself doing anything else. Like I'll probably, or, I mean, you don't know what the future holds. I could probably find myself in a different career path, but at the core, the why will be the same. The that's why huge. will be the same. That's huge. And, you know, I feel like to be persistent in, in your why and doing what you really love, you need some routines, right? So yes. 
what is a routine or ritual that you do every single day that you believe has helped you with time? Or is, what is something you might want to start doing or whatnot? Just be open with me. <sighs> the one thing that I absolutely try to do on a consistent basis is the morning routine. Like my morning routine. Um, I've always been the person that loves to wake up early so I can breathe, meditate, stretch, and start my day. Now with a baby, the morning routine has been moved up <laughs> on the schedule. Instead of 5 a.m., it's now like 3.34 a.m. On the best days, I wake up at 3.34 to start my day. So I start with uh, first things first is the verse of the day. Before anything else, I, I mean, as I get out of bed, a gratitude, like I'm grateful that I get to see another day. Thank you, Lord, for this, because I don't take it for granted. Then I go to walk, uh, read the verse of the day. I read my verse of the day as in the Bible. And that sets the tone. I meditate on the word. And once I've meditated on the word and I get the, my message, I journal on what my intention for the day is. And the journaling can be writing or um, voice recording, depending on the day. Once I'm done with my meditation, prayer and intention, it's about usually an hour and a half. Then I get into what is important for that day that I have on my schedule. I do all this before I open my emails, before I even touch any social media. Like my phone is only open so I can read the Bible app. And I try to get all the important things done if it's two for that day before 7 a.m. So between 4 a.m. and 7 a.m., it's prayer, meditation, stretching, usually light exercise for 10, 15 minutes. Tai Chi. I love Tai Chi because it's slow, but it's so powerful. And uh, then it's like, okay, now I've done my work. After that, it's like get the baby ready because she's going to wake up and start the day as the mom. And when she's now ready to go play with her stuff, I continue with the non-essential or non-urgent things of the day. But at the beginning of my day, every day, no matter what, verse of the day, prayer, meditation, gratitude, set your intention, get the important things that must be done that day done before you open your emails, before you get other people's on your agenda, and before you get on social media. Super I important. Totally, I totally believe in that. And I feel like that's something that's helped me too, right? So, wow. Wow. you know, when it comes with affirmations and yes, 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 I love that. I love that because, you know, it's helped me. And also it's as if I set the tone for the day. Yes. Right? You basically do. You set the tone for your day. And it's almost like you have now this shield that you know what the day feels like before life happens. So when life does happen, you already are anchored and the rest just sort of just slides through and just like, it doesn't get through you as much as it could because you are armed and dangerous <laughs> you know what I mean so yeah I agree and you know speaking of manifestation and you know I, I feel like you're on the right track and I've always admired you and everything that you've been doing in the creative space and just especially representing us women of color in all of Canada and even in the U.S. right because I know you have clients from all over yes yes I, I just think it's so amazing and tell the Thank audience you. you know tell even tell me how do you envision your future what are some things that you would want to do Oh, wow. What a, what a really good question, Miss Sarah. Oh, my God. I believe in manifestation, too. I believe that you have to be able to, like they say in the Bible, write the vision, make it plain. The more you write, the more you have chances to see it manifest because now your mind knows what to work towards. And one thing I'm absolutely focused on is the next decade. Like I've stopped thinking in terms of years because years will happen and they will be decades before we know it. Um what I want for the next decade for me is impact. That's what I want. Like I want to make a greater impact globally on women 
between, I would say, the age of 14 to like 34. And if it goes above that, that's also awesome. But the reason why I want to make an impact is because I feel that what I've achieved so far and what I will continue to achieve over the next years requires this sort of platform where more lives will be impacted positively. And that means probably pushing the idea of having a web series, a web show that really speaks on a broader level, a broader audience on a regular basis. So creating web shows, creating content that's really impactful, probably a community online gathering event where people from around the world can be all together at the same time, listening to powerful messages and manifesting their best dreams. So for me, it's the future looks like a strong community of powerful women impacting each other and hopefully me being the vessel to make it happen. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, you did. Oh my God, this whole thing is like a quote. Oh, <laughs> well then I will wait for the recording. Maybe so when, I'll ins- and when you're reading a book and they have like the quote between the chapter, like this whole thing is literally a quote. I think it's so beautiful and it's such an amazing purpose, right? So I think you're awesome. Thank you so much. I can hear like the baby music in the back. And you know what? I never edit these things out because I thought- oh! Oh, that's I'm gonna like, be fine. No, it's not loud. It's not loud, but I'm like, this is reality. You know, we have our kids at home. There's no yeah, no, she and actually, you know, the entire time that even before you could hear it, because I was on the other side of the room, she's been in the room this entire time. She was watching her show, and oh now, like, she made she she waved at me because she was like, I think she wants to breastfeed. So I came closer to her, <laughs> and she's just watching her monsters oh, and stuff. For wrapping it up at the at the right time, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on here. You definitely are a mom on the grind, and oh. we're find you. Well, you can definitely find me on social media everywhere on social media, whether we're talking Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Noelle Sam, which is easier because from Noelle Sam, then you can find all the other channels. So it's Noelle Sam, N-O-E-L-L-Y-S-A-M. For those who speak French, Noelle is like Christmas in French. So Noelle Sam on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Easy to find me. I'm super open to DM private message. I'm currently actually doing... Um, mastermind sessions at no charge for creative women and uh, entrepreneurs. So if there are women in your network who would just want another mind to bounce off and brainstorm ideas, I'm more than open to uh, connect with them. Oh, that's such a good idea. And what I like too is that because you're in Montreal, you know, you're in North America. So anyone in the U.S., anyone that's within even the same time zone or even around the world, but, you know, more like in North America, you're it's, it's the same time. So everyone can join you. Yes. And if it's at a different time zone, we just make it happen. I have one who's in uh, London and it's like six hour difference, but we just, whatever works for her, if it's 7 p.m. for her, 1 p.m. for me, we make it happen. And uh, so far, so good. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. Well, after Keep you. it up, Sarah. <laughs> Keep it up. You're doing great. And uh, I'm very happy to have stayed connected with you that way. Thank you so much for listening, guys. If you like this episode, please share it. If you do enjoy the podcast, please leave it a five-star review on iTunes. It would mean the world to me. And I'm also always open for feedback. So if you guys have any ideas for the show or 
you know, want to suggest someone that I could interview, please feel free to email me or write me on Instagram. Don't forget to follow Moms on the Grind on Instagram at Moms on the Grind and myself, Sarah Desmores at Sarah Desmores. I hope that you guys have an amazing, amazing week.